You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hi everyone, this is the Ask Annie podcast, Horse Girl reviews on products you use. This episode is brought to you by Burringer Ingelheim. Horses are living, breathing works of art, and caring for them requires an entire team. Veterinarians, farriers, trainers, riders, and grooms. Burringer Ingelheim is proud to help provide tools to help the team keep them performing at their peak. Veterinarians, farriers, trainers, riders, grooms, everyone plays a role keeping these horses at peak performance. Burringer Ingelheim is proud to provide the tools to help your team keep them healthy. From joint health to gastric health, Burringer Ingelheim is here to support your horse's team. We provide the tools and your team provides the everyday care to keep these horses performing at their peak. Dr. Hoyt Sheremy is the professional services veterinarian at Beringer Ingelheim and a world-renowned expert on equine gastric ulcer syndrome. He received both his bachelor's and doctorate in veterinary medicine degrees from Louisiana State University in the early 90s, whereafter he practiced large animal surgery throughout the country from 1999 through 2007. He then began his professional consulting and technical support career with Merrill. When Merrill was acquired by Behringer Ingelheim in 2017, Dr. Sheremy made the transition as well and has been with BI ever since. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Sheremy. Oh, you're very welcome. So Behringer Ingelheim offers a variety of products that help horse owners maintain and prevent a multitude of ailments, but the typical horse owner might not know what goes into development and production of these products. Can you take us through how products such as UlcerGuard or Prasmid come about? Sure. Um, so when a, a drug is looking at being developed, there's always some underlying condition or need for it, right? And so as, as veterinarians practicing throughout um, the, our career, trying to come up with different ways to treat animals, there's often consultations with drug companies about things that are needed. And, and drug companies are really astute to the, the needs of uh, the practicing veterinarian, whether that's for horses or food animals or, or pets. And so when there's an identified need, uh, these pharmaceutical companies that, that specialize in making animal medicines uh, will uh, get a team together from their research and development group and identify potential compounds or chemicals um, that will later become a drug as to maybe going to be useful in managing that particular condition. So. We start usually with a pilot program to see does you know which of these drugs. Oftentimes, we start out with multiple different um, compounds and narrow it down to what might be most effective based on its chemistry and, and uh, suspected safety. And then we'll put it in some animals and make sure it is actually safe. And then we'll find um, with the disease either a model to create the process uh, or um, some actual animals that have or are suffering from the condition. And then it's going to be looked at uh, in those animals from um, a trial to show that there is some potential use uh, and it, it is effective and safe. Once the kind of final drug is identified or compound is identified, then that will go through what we call a clinical trial, where most often it's um, animals that are owned by horse-owning clients or, or uh, dog clients, um, 
and that will be done in actual animals suffering from that condition. Sometimes it's compared to a placebo. Sometimes it's compared to another product that's already on the market that's been approved to show efficacy uh, in that condition. Uh, usually before, right before, or concurrently, a significant safety study will be done looking at all different um, or, or several different um, elevated doses and elevated times that we might give it to make sure that the drugs are safe. Once those things are done, it's that information is presented to FDA along with a lot of other things about the production of the drug. Just because you identify a chemical and it seems to work, you have to be able to make it into a product that is consistent uh, and, and stable over time so that it can get to the market and, and then be useful. And, and that, that process total from start to finish uh, in say the veterinary world can take anywhere from four to 10 years to do and several millions of dollars to get that product that's going to be you know safe and effective uh, to the marketplace. Wow yeah quite a process so I want to kind of take what you said and break them all down so first what is the difference between a pioneer drug a compound drug and a generic drug? Okay, so the, the Pioneer drug would be the first drug brought to market for a specific condition of that particular chemical compound. Um, and, uh, and so that process is, is done as we already discussed. Um, once that drug is approved, it's known as the Pioneer drug or the brand drug. Okay, so think of acetaminophen, right? Tylenol is the first acetaminophen, so that's the brand name. Uh, on, on the equine side, we can think of a drug like Gastrigard. But the compound is a meprazole, but the brand name is Gastrigard. So that's what a pioneer drug is. Um, once it's approved, the FDA does grant a, a time of uh, exclusivity to help the manufacturers be the only seller uh, of the medication so that they can recoup the cost. Remember, it can take upwards of several million dollars to get a drug to market. And although we would love companies to do this altruistically, right, to, they have to make money to be able to make more medications, right? And so um, that, that exclusivity is, is granted for a period of time. It's generally about five to seven years. In rare instances, it might be longer. Um, and, and that's the, then the pioneer drug. The next step would then be a generic drug. So once that exclusivity period uh, is gone, or if the drug company also got a patent outside of the FDA, then that might regulate how long the combination of things can be used. Um, in, in uncommon cases, we see that as well. If another company then wants to make a copy of that drug, once the exclusivity uh, period is gone, they can do so, and that then would be a generic of the drug. Um, and so uh, the process of that is generally to show that the, the compound that they develop and the product they develop as a generic is equivalent to the pioneer drug. Um, that's usually done through chemical testing as well as what we call um, bioequivalency, where they put it in animal, animals and then they're going to test to make sure the same drug level is achieved. 
Um, so that's what's called bioequivalent. So we test the blood, make sure that the same amount of drug gets in the blood after whatever method of administering it is going to be done as the uh, drug level from administering the Pioneer drug. And if that's shown to be the case, then the FDA accepts that, well, based on the Pioneer's drug's efficacy and safety, then the generic would have similar efficacy and safety. And in most cases, that's true. In some cases, both in the human side and on the animal side, we might see some slight differences in that, but generally they're going to be considered equivalent by the FDA. Hmm. And then a compounded drug is a drug that's actually manufactured um, uh, by a compounding pharmacist. Uh, they generally, on the veterinary side, the way the law is written for animals, the, the law states that if there is an already available drug or, or that compound, um, compounding is supposed to start with that product. So say something like phenylbutazone, where there's phenylbutazone tablets that are approved and marketed. If somebody wanted to compound phenylbutazone, they would just have to grind up the tablets and maybe add a flavoring. Um, for animals, based on what we call the AMDUCA law or the Animal um, Medical Drug uh, Use Clarification Act, uh, that in the early 90s really gave veterinarians the ability to use medications extra label and gave some rules regarding compounding, uh, said that, you know, these compounds should only be started from an already approved animal or human drug. Oftentimes, though, uh, compounders will get what we call just raw API or the active pharmaceutical ingredient and then mix it themselves. Um, in certain cases that's allowed, but on the veterinary side, it's really not the way the rule is written as it should proceed because we talked about a drug approval from FDA, right? We kind of talked really about the product approval. When you get a product approval, the FDA has to go into your manufacturing plant and make sure your manufacturing plant is up to their standards and that plant gets approved. And then the drug starting compound, that API, has to be um, shown to be consistent and the same thing that that plant's producing so that they know the final product is going to be consistent every time it's made. Not all APIs are regulated by the FDA, so sometimes compounders can bring APIs in that may not have been um, uh, regulated or produced in an FDA approved facility, and then they just mix those. So there's a, a, a large kind of spectrum of potential um, efficacy and consistency with that. And in studies over the years, we see that compounded drugs, especially with certain drugs that aren't very stable, uh, can lose their stability when mixed the way that compounding pharmacies can. But we know that compounded drugs are quite useful in equine medicine. Um, because we don't have access to all the kinds of drugs we would want that are labeled for horses. There's mm -hmm. a lot of drugs that aren't labeled specifically for horses with that appropriate indication. And so we have to use other medications and get them made specifically for that individual animal sometimes so we can be effective in treating them. Wow. Yeah, quite the process. I'm really glad you brought up um, what the uh, FDA approval means can you kind of go into 
what what that actually means um, for a manufacturer and um, you brought up uh, the getting the manufacturing plant certified and all of that. Can you kind of go into those details that the normal horse owner might not might not know what FDA approval means? Sure. So, so the basis of, of FDA approval is going to ensure safety and efficacy so that the drug is safe to use in that species and then it's going to work for what the label says it does. And, and that's kind of the process we talked a little bit at the beginning where we take that compound and go through all the different steps to get it to show, okay, this is what we're going to use in this condition. We're going to make a formulation, whether it's a pill, a paste, an injection, um, and, and that's going to be given to the, the patient. But again, that process is, is really more involved than even just what the manufacturer or the pharmaceutical company does from a research standpoint. You have to get it to be a producible end product. And not all products are, are very stable. And, and actually, one that, that BI makes, um, or a couple of them, Gastrogard and Ulcigard, are prime examples. Uh, Omeprazole, which is the drug in those products, is, is very um, unstable uh, if the pH gets too um, low. Uh, so in actually in a, uh, in a stomach setting where the pH is really low, Omeprazole would be uh, deactivated or actually activated too soon before it's absorbed, and then it's not effective. Um, and so it has to be protected. Same thing on human side. Omeprazole is Prilosec. And, uh, and so if you, if you read the label for Prilosec, it says, do not crush or chew the tablet, take on an empty stomach. Because Omeprazole has to get down into the intestines past the stomach to get absorbed in the blood and go back to the stomach. And if it's broken down in the stomach because we chewed the tablet and exposed it to the acid or we ate it with a meal and then we make a bunch of acid when we eat the meal and it dissolves the tablet in the stomach, it might not be as effective. So all those different things have to come into play when you manufacture the final product. What the company has to do is get their plant approved to show FDA that we make this product the same every day that it's produced. So a product made in for Gastrogard that was launched in 1999. So a product that made in 2002 is the exact same thing we're making today. And it's going to have the same stability or shelf life. And all that goes into what then in turn is the approval by FDA. Wow. Quite a process again. My goodness. <laughs> it's no wonder it takes up to 10 years. <laughs> it, exactly it, it can you know we think of oh let's make this and and uh it's not going to be around next month it's going to be many years in, in the making for that to happen but yeah. again what what the final product in, is insured to the horse owner uh, is that they're getting something that's been shown to work shown to be safe shown to be consistent every time they're going to give it yeah absolutely so jumping back to your personal experience in doing my research, I found that you've performed over 3000 gastropic exams. What do you think you've been able to bring to BI with this experience in gastric health? So I think that the most important thing initially was just awareness um, that because of how we manage and feed horses, we predispose them to developing gastric ulcers. And, and in most cases, it's actually um, more like GERD and reflux disease in, in people. So just that awareness that, that gastric ulcer disease um, is, is a problem, it's prominent because of what we do and how we manage and feed horses. 
And then it also can affect them from a health standpoint, as well as a performance standpoint because of the negative impact on, on the horse's body. The second most, th- um, I think, important thing um, is really seeing that EGUS, what we call equine gastric ulcer syndrome, it sh- should now be divided into two conditions. And that's because the horse's stomach has two different linings, uh, unlike our stomach. And ulcers or lesions in the different uh, areas um, have a difference in how they heal and what medications we might use. Whereas a long time ago, we thought all ulcers were the same, and now we know that they're not. So we have squamous disease and glandular disease. And so from doing all these gastroscopic exams, I've been able to see that that's different. Some horses have only squamous, some horses have only glandular, and some horses have both. And depending on what we find, will dictate which type of treatment protocol is going to be best for that individual horse. And then the last thing I think for me would be the ability that I've been able to, along with some great mentors of mine, kind of um, not perfect because nothing I think we ever perfect, but to really help develop the process or technique uh, and, and refine it so that the veterinarian can do a, a much more efficient but complete exam of the stomach from maybe in the past. And so I've worked over the years trying to really get that technique um, uh, to a very specific technique that I go out and, and as BI supports us and the rest of our VS, uh, vet services team that does gastroscopies, not just myself, but we can go out and teach veterinarians to do this technique um, so that it's, it's um, takes less time, it's more complete, and actually in the end, uh, the technique we, we use should help develop the scope from getting damaged during the exam, which unfortunately does happen sometimes. Um, horses can bite the scope because they're still awake, although we pass it through their, their nose to get into their esophagus and then into their stomach. Um, it can end up in the mouth um, during the swallowing process and later on because it's so flexible. And if it gets bit, that's not a good thing for the scoop or for the veterinarian or for the horse. So uh, being able to, to refine that technique to help people do the procedure better has been really fun and exciting for me. Yeah, I bet. Well, and you mentioned educating veterinarians, um, but what can horse owners do to help uh, their horse's gastric health on a daily or maintained basis? So one is really accept that what we do and how we feed and manage horses is not really how their gastrointestinal system is meant. We meal feed horses and that allows their stomach to be full and empty and full and empty. And if we look at a horse grazing, it should always be full of grass, really. They have small stomachs. They have to eat frequently or almost continuously. Um, and the way that their stomach is designed, that's ideal. And, and just really understanding that when we meal feed horses, we change that normal process. And, uh, and so that's what predisposes horses to definitely squamous disease, um, which is basically heartburn and GERD in people. But it just happens in the horse's stomach because that tissue exists in the stomach, unlike in people. And then um, reducing stress. We know stress is involved with glandular disease, and you can't just look at a horse from the outside and, and say that horse is stressed or not. Really, unless we're measuring the stress hormone, it's difficult to say. 
So we should kind of treat all horses the same as far as minimizing stress, feeding them more to simulate their natural feeding um, uh, system. And then the last thing would be there are some supplements we can use from a daily standpoint if owners are interested in that. But they should always discuss those with their veterinarian, um, even though they're they're readily available at the tax shop or online. Um, what we want to make sure is that those supplements actually can work and have the potential to work. And there's some research that's been done on multiple types of supplements, and there's only really a handful that have really shown the significant benefit to me from a value standpoint if I'm consulting with with horse owners. You know, if you're going to spend some money. You want that money to have a specific value, right, to what you're buying and that it's worthwhile giving it to your horse. And so having that conversation with their horse owner, because Dr. Google's going to say whatever the manufacturers or the sellers of those supplements say. And supplements in the U.S. for animals are not really regulated at all. Um, there's no requirement to even have in the bucket what is on the label. Um, so they're not tested or anything. If manufacturers test them themselves and do studies themselves, that's only their own um, individual um, uh, processes. Um, so if you're going to use a supplement, use something that then we ha we know has at least some potential to work. And they can find that out from talking about it with their veterinarian. And then last thing, if they're really doing something that's out of the ordinary, um, hauling horses, changing their environment, going to the show, then is to use a prevention. Just like if you know you're going to get heartburn when you eat pizza, it's better to take your prevention on the front end, right? Same thing with horses. And so that's where kind of ulcer guard would come in. It's also meprazole, but we use a much lower amount to achieve the prevention standpoint from the, that's different from the amount we would use to try to treat a horse's ulcers uh, in the case of using gastroguard. Those things combined, I think really truly understanding, you know, what we do with horses is not the best for their GI system. But most people don't want to just have a horse to look at it over a fence while it eats grass, right? We like to do things with our horse. But understanding by doing that, we unfortunately predispose their stomach to, to end up with some issues. Getting good supplements that have a potential to work and then using some good medication that's shown to be beneficial in those situations where we can use a little extra prevention. So those are the things kind of I think of from a daily standpoint that That's horse awesome. owners really can utilize to their advantage to keep their horses gastric health better. Yeah, really and a really multifaceted approach. You know, it's not that one thing is going to solve everything. It's maintenance and having something on hand occasionally and knowing when your horse might be stressed. So yeah. That's correct. Awesome. Uh, are there any new products on the horizon from BI that listeners should be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, so so BI does have a very active uh, equine development pipeline. We're always looking, our scientists are always looking at, for compounds that we might be able to develop into medications that could treat certain conditions. We're also looking, always looking for uh, products that are already on the market that we think if uh, we acquired, we could help get them out there better as a bigger company and things like that. So um, both of those things are, are always active going. And, and currently, although I can't give very uh, detailed specifics, we have some very interesting, innovative uh, products that uh, BI is looking at. Nothing that's going to come up in the next few months, but 
that uh, we're working on and, and developing uh, for use both from a lameness standpoint, uh, which would be some interesting um, kind of advanced type um, medications uh, or what some people might call um, biopharmaceuticals that would be off the shelf. So that's an interesting approach for using those kind of what or what some people call regenerative type therapies. Um, so we're looking at that for use in horses, but, but again, from a more off the shelf standpoint where it's um, readily available for whenever you need it. And then also similar innovation for medications, looking at metabolic and endocrine issues in horses. Um, so we have Persind, which is a medication for PPID uh, in, in horses. But there's other endocrine and metabolic conditions that uh, are out there that we're studying and, and looking at the potential to bring medications to the market for that as well in, in the not too distant future, but not anytime soon. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really exciting, though. I'm, I'm curious to see how that all turns out. And I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for them. So. Yeah, I mean, we, we brought out uh, a recent uh, innovation, the Acervo Equihaler. You know, that uh, it's an asthma treatment for horses uh, through uh, uh, an administration process or, or product as well. So we call it the Acervo Equihaler. Uh, and it's uh, Acervo is the brand name of the drug and the Equihaler is the, the um, device that's combined with the drug to be able to get it into the horse effectively. And so, you know, that, that's what we think are the, the, the type of innovative things that we're looking to bring to horse owners. Things to make it easier for them, better for their horses. Thanks for tuning in. Learn more about the Ask Annie podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Ask Annie Podcast. Have a suggestion for a product you'd like me to use in an upcoming episode? Email me at askanniepodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment on any of our social media pages. Find even more Ask Annie episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. The Ask Annie Podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of Equine Network, LLC.